Welcome to the Untribal Podcast, the show that gives you news content by regular people for regular people. Today I'm joined by an award-winning investigative journalist and honours achieving callness in the Scottish press. Uh, without further ado, Neil McKay, ladies and gents. How are you doing today, Neil? Are you all right? I'm grand, Dennis. Thank you very much for asking me on. Yeah, looking forward to chatting to you and your audience. Yeah, yeah. usually you're the one asking questions. Is, is this a strange feeling, me, me asking the questions this time? Uh, no, not really. I do quite a lot of, um, you know, podcasts being interviewed and I've done a fair bit of radio myself, usually on the other side of the mic. I usually do talk radio as a, as a host. I've done a fair bit of talk radio for BBC Scotland and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, I know. I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to you interrogating me, hopefully in a nice way and not too painful. <laughs> Always. Uh, so tell us your story, Neil. Uh, you've, you've got an interesting sort of journey into Scottish politics, don't you? You started off in, you're obviously from Northern Ireland, then you came here in the mid-90s, is that correct? That's right, yeah. So um, I uh, I was a journalist in Northern Ireland for a while due to various things, you know. So this, the, 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 we call... Today, I find it kind of weird that we refer to what I experienced growing up as the Troubles. It's such a euphemism for such a ghastly inter-neighbor ethnic civil war, really, is what I grew up in. So I, um, in the mid-90s, um, I was getting married and I'd, I'd done a, some reporting which hadn't been um, favored too well by some um, some of the more scary folk in Northern Ireland and I thought you know what I'm going to move and it was a toss-up between moving to London or uh, Glasgow and Glasgow is very similar to Belfast so I made the journey over here and made Scotland my home and I was able to continue reporting on Northern Ireland extensively uh, it's one of the kind of major strings to my bow as a reporter was the covering security in Northern Ireland but at one remove in in Scotland which actually made my reporting better I think and um, yeah uh, and so over the years I've kind of worked extensively across the Scottish media and as a filmmaker, radio broadcaster, author, mostly as a journalist. I edited the Sunday Herald for four years and I was um I've been an investigative journalist for you know most of my career. So um now um you know as I'm a much you know in my maturer years, shall we say, um I I'm a columnist and I write prime so I primarily write columns for the Herald and long form journalism for the Herald, but you know, I do other projects as well around um, filmmaking and writing and so forth. But that's that's enough of me babbling on about myself. That's not that <laughs> interesting. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely is interesting. I, I noticed you picked up on you know the the use of the word troubles, and you I, I gained a sense of discomfort when you were saying that. You called that a euphemism. Do you think it, that sort of dumbs down, not dumbs down, sort of boils down the severity of what went on in, in your childhood, or uh, uh, yeah, and well, not just in my childhood. And as I was born in nineteen seventy, so yeah. The troubles, the so-called trouble started in 1969 and they went on, as you know, until the peace process began after I had left Northern Ireland. Um, yeah, it absolutely, it, it diminishes the the horror of what happened. You know, it was a community where we had a murder gangs called the Shankle Butchers, you know, who abducted people off the street, innocent people off the street, tortured them in, in bars in front of Bane mobs for you know sectarian entertainment murdered them dumped them in you know back alleys you know that's 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 one half that's the that's the loyalist side of terror on the other side on the republican side you had appalling um mass bombings at you know like the Enniskill and poppy day memorial and uh, terrible terrible things neighbors murdering neighbors um people living in a state of absolute dread my, if, to be honest my uh my take in Northern Ireland is that the entire country suffers from a case of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, how could you not? 
we we grew up with it's a small country very small i mean much smaller than scotland so nobody was left untouched by what happened in northern Ireland. Mm. i myself i was i I, when as a reporter i was i was kidnapped i was i went through a mock execution a gun was held to my head and blank fired i thought i was going to be shot dead so terrible things happened and that's and you know reporters have been killed reporters i know were murdered in northern ireland um and you know it was a terrible time, an awful yeah. time, um, which maybe uh, explains, I suppose, in a Scottish context, my, you know, I, I am a supporter of uh, independence, as you know, but anything that smacks of, and it's very fitting, the title of your show, Untribal, anything that smacks of tribalism to me, it scares me. Mm-hmm. I'm, it genuinely scares me because I know how a society can unravel. Yeah, and I, I, I can sort of see that translation in your writings as well. It's very balanced. You know, you're, you're supportive of independence, but you're not sort of blinded by the SNP movement and their their, their, down, their downfalls and what they could be doing more of. And so it's like, I can really I care nothing for political parties. I have not. I've I've got. I'm very troubled by the fact that um, independence, which I see as a civic question, is actually led by politicians because. Look, I know a lot of good politicians. I'm not going to put them all in a bracket where they're all baddies, right? But most of them, I know are in it for themselves. They don't give two dams, whether they set me against you or you against me, as long as they stay in power, uh, as long as they can ride their political hobby horse. Um, you know, they don't give they don't give a damn, especially in this day and age where they can manipulate through um, the use of social media and wedge issues around the culture war and identity. Um, so I, I, I hate the fact that uh, independence is, is fronted up by a political movement, uh, by a political party. It, I wish it was fronted up by um members of so-called civic scotland you know trade unions academics writers artists um folk who run grassroots organizations ordinary men and women i I wish it was that it's not and that's primarily my worry because i know what politicians do the troubles didn't start with men with guns the troubles started with politicians i'm not i'm not talking about the ulcerization of scottish politics because i don't believe we're anywhere near that i just you know the myth of the Trojan princess Cassandra, who always um, was predicting something terrible was going to happen. Um, yeah. Well, I kind of feel sometimes that that is the best rule a, a journalist can adopt, particularly if they've got a hinterland and yeah. they're aware of um, the darker side of human life. I'm, I'd rather warn and be wrong than not warn and um, be silent. Do you know what I mean? Does that absolutely. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. And you'll have noticed a little bit of... I mean, we're having this conversation on Zoom, Neil, so we can see each other, but you could, you've, you'll have noticed a bit of shock when you were talking about the experiences that you did have in Ireland when you were younger. And I think people in Scotland and, and the UK more generally still have that real sense of shock factor when they hear about people's experiences in Ireland and how devastating it actually was for people over there. Yeah, And yet, and yet we still have that shock factor. Do you think there's a bit of a... Jake, there's a bit of an ignorance towards Ireland in the British media. Like you know, if you, if you if you if you if you look at the BBC or you look at any sort of news channel, you, there doesn't seem to be any sort of coverage about Ireland ever these days. Yeah, I, I don't see it. And yet, when you go over to Ireland, they're constantly reporting about you know British affairs. Jake, that ignorance is playing into the. It, it's almost like sweeping aside how devastating that was for your community. The ignorance about Ireland, both in, both in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, is uh, profound uh, in so-called, I hate this expression, mainland, as if this bigger island is more important than the little island I come from, which it's not, by the way. And uh, economically, we can see the tides have turned post-Brexit. We know which is the stronger economy, which is the more healthy polity, and it's uh, the Republic of Ireland, certainly not the United Kingdom. However, that said, as a journalist, I have experienced nothing but... Um, 
disinterest by um, commissioning editors in television and newspaper editors in um, a bar, a few who I worked for, uh, in, particularly in the Sunday Herald, who took an interest in, in, in Northern Ireland and its affairs. Most of them, do you know what has been said to me more times than enough? And I'm not joking you. This is actually said to me as an Irishman. Oh, it's just paddies killing each other, right? Now, I've heard that from commissioning editors in some of the biggest channels um, in the UK. It's just paddies killing each other. I've also, you know, it, it, so broadly, when, when I, you know, I worked as a, 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 a producer for, a, for quite a period of time doing uh, investigative documentaries. And as you know, you probably read some of my stuff. I've done a lot of investigations into particularly the dirty war in Northern Ireland, collusion between the British state and uh, uh, murder gangs and terror organizations. One of my sort of most famous stories is naming the agent State Knife, who was the highest placed um, British spy within the IRA. These are big stories, right? Big stories which unravel the machinations of terror organizations, put the British government in the dock when it comes to... Um, illegal security operations in Northern Ireland, which resulted in the deaths of civilians. And um, for most of the 90s, the noughties, and the 2010s, no one gave a damn. Mm. I would actually hear those words, you know, it's just it's just Ireland. People shoot each other in Ireland. Why are you going over ancient history? Well, because you better understand your history or you never, you're doomed to not understand the present. And it's not just uh, a dismissive approach to... The affairs of uh, the the affairs of the past. There's a willful failure to understand the affairs of the present. Anyone from the island of Ireland could have told you what Brexit was going to do. It was going to jeopardise the peace process. It was going to make the British government look an absolute idiot on the world stage because it was unravelling its own union. Um, and no one cared. No, I mean the, this wasn't report. It was barely barely touched on. While the BBC was doing its kind of absolutely idiotic phony dance of balance uh with brexiteers who were lying and then putting up levers who weren't lying against liars how's that balance it's not a <laughs> platform and a liar yeah. um and then having some poor um you know academic or you remember those expert things that we dismissed through michael gove uh, getting them to try and give a bit of redress you know it just wasn't cared about but even worse there is um an existing um xenophobia towards um, Irish people within the more elite strata of British society, by which I'll say the upper echelons of the media, um, which I've, you know, moved in throughout my life, oftentimes uncomfortably because I'm, I think it's, uh, it's the, um, uh, it's the locale of a, you know, usually a bunch of public school boys who are pretty witless, but I once met Beware, never meet your heroes. And as I once met one of my heroes, very, very famous liberal journalists, two very famous liberal journalists once at a very prestigious award ceremony where I was getting a, a gong for my investigations into Ireland, among other things, and my investigations into the Iraq war and the misuse of intelligence there. And I met these two uh, two heroes of mine <clears throat> and we uh, were sitting down to dinner afterwards. And um, once again, the words, oh, God, you whinge and patties. That was said to me by one of my liberal liberal heroes. This isn't some, you know, um, you know, hard right um, member of the media. This is a liberal darling, okay? And I won't name them, There's there, but uh, a, a liberal darling and his, a, another liberal darling sitting beside them, snickering about how, you know, patties whinge on about the war. 
And I'm thinking, well, you, well, I was just um, getting an award for investigating what the British government was doing in Northern Ireland. And, um, you know, you folks are always telling us how important human rights are and, um, you know, the press standing up to uh, misuse of power. And here you are mocking the Irish people for fundamentally just being Irish. So, yeah, it exists. It's very real. So there's a noticeable problematic relationship <laughs> between the Irish and the British, certainly in the political, you know, commentary sphere. How many sort of, or what are the extent of telltale signs do you see that in the relationship between um, Scottish political commentators and its relationship with our, uh, with the rest of the United Kingdom? You mean, um, you, do you mean is the British commentary out of sync with uh, understanding Scottish politics? Is that sort of... I, it it could be in a way. I'm just I'm just more being it's happening to your experiences of living in Ireland and the pro, the sort of problematic relationship that Ireland's had with Britain. Um, how how much do you see that in Scotland its relationship with um the kind of people that you're talking about in the British establishment and and media? Um, it, it exists because I'm not Scottish, so I I won't be able to speak to any of that kind of juvenile bigotry that you might come across as public school kind of slagging. Um, which is frankly, you know, beneath everybody. So I'm afraid I couldn't really talk directly to that. Clearly, I've, you know, I've heard, you know, kind of um, low level slurs about Scotland and the in the in the British media and stuff. And yeah, it's, that comes as no surprise. But what I think is more troubling is, um, the again the willful lack of understanding of of Scottish politics that. Um, the particularly the London-based press. If there's an if 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 a major issue comes on their radar, I don't know. Say the some of the scandals that the SNP have been involved in of late, for example, or there's a uh, some big push for Indy for another a referendum. You know, they, they'll parachute folk in. Frankly, is trying is what I'm trying to say. Who know nothing about the, the 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 landscape in which they're operating, which is just absurd. We're literally up the road. Um, however. I would flip that around and I would say that there is a growing lack of interest in broader uh, issues within Scotland. I think our attention spans are narrowing down. I think Scotland is focusing too much on Scotland. Mm. Scotland does focus much more, for example, on Northern Ireland than the English press do. Listen, we don't. Is it ever, do you ever read a story or see a story in the Scottish press about Wales? No. <laughs> right? No, no never. No. Never. Um. If you look at the the the, the vast swathe of the Scottish press, um, there'll be big stories about you know what's happening in 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 the in the Westminster Parliament, and it'll get shunted for a more parochial story in Scotland, which well, I'm not I'm not right I'm not sure why because we're we still exist within the polity called Britain, and we need to know what's going on there. I think there is a narrowing of interest in Scotland. Uh, and you also see that I think around foreign affairs. I don't think that um, that the attention is paid to foreign affairs here that we should pay as a mm. a nation that wants to wants to become independent. I think we yeah. do. Maybe it's a maybe this is a product of still being a, a a constituent part of a country rather than a country as ourselves. Um, but it feels like we really should broaden horizons. I understandably we we narrowly focus on. Scottish politics, um, but I think we should stop doing that to almost the exclusion of all else. It just worries me that, but I see this across all kind of realms of society now that, and I'm not sure whether this is almost a kind of 
we're veering into the realms of neuroscience here and the depleting attention spans that we've got. Um, but you know, I, we I, there does seem to be a narrowing of interest across, you know, across um, across society as at large. You know, yeah. I think the arts, the arts is terribly underreported in Scotland. I think science and technology is terribly underreported. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting you mentioned foreign affairs as well because I remember interviewing Ian Blackford on here a couple of years ago, and I remember I think he was in charge of he was a shadow secretary of some sort for foreign affairs at the time. Well, I mean, he was also less Minister leader, but I remember him talking about it at the time. I remember saying to him, look, if, if a, a situation were to arise like Syria or Libya, um, and had we been independent at the time, what would be the choice of the SNP in that kind of scenario? How involved would we? Would we be standing hand in hand with Britain and going to these places and and, and military, militarily intervening in these countries? And he couldn't answer the question. So it's interesting that you point that out because it's clearly evidenced. Do you think the narrowing of debate is a deliberate political tactic by the SNP, knowing that if they can divide the country into 50 and 50, they're a very powerful political party? Or, you know, do, do you not think it's deliberate? No, I, I, no, I don't. That, that, for me, that would be a, a, a conspiratorial step too far. I don't, I don't think that the... I'm sure the SNP would like that to happen. I'm just not sure they're bright enough for that to do that. But right. I think I think that the narrowing of debate is primarily down to a couple of things. I think it's down to the change in how we consume news. We consume it through our phones and through our tablets, and we consume it rather than rather than even going onto a newspaper website and consuming the entire or most of the product. Like well, the way I used to consume news, for example, the, classically in the '90s, would you buy? your paper of choice and you'd sit down and you'd flick through it from cover to cover or maybe you go to the sport first and you'd pull out the the magazine or the telly section you'd, you'd read your news and you'd read your sport and you'd read your features a bit of foreign affairs maybe read your horoscopes have a look at a recipe for the we don't do that anymore our attention spans have completely changed which um and you dovetail that in with clickbait with the terrible um, it's not just clickbait one of the most deleterious things i think that exists within all newspaper websites is that uh, is the top 10 if you go and look at the top 10 and most most newspaper websites will have a top 10 these are the stories that people are reading now the journalists who have written stories that day will look at what's in the top 10 and even subconsciously they'll try they'll, they'll find themselves funneled into that so let's say let's say uh you know you look at a top 10 and it's all stories about scottish politics well everyone will start writing about scottish politics all stories about the old firm everyone will start writing about the old firm all stories about pick the subject you know what i mean it's a narrowing of it's it's a kind of enforced narrowing of interest back in the day when you didn't know which stories readers were reading in a newspaper newspapers had a much broader scope because um reporters were working on their instincts on their interests editors were doing the same and there was a breadth of storytelling which i don't think exists anymore and i, I include this across all the media broadcast as well as uh, uh legacy and uh, new media that the interest frame is really really narrowed so you're hyper served on particular subjects like scottish politics but you're absolutely not served on say science and technology, foreign affairs, culture. I mean, I'm not like trying to be a, a smart arse here or anything, but, you know, 
Do you ever read stories about opera or ballet in in, in Scotland? Now, I know that might not be your thing, but it is. No, it's not my thing. I was wish. No, but cool. It's not your thing. But what? But imagine if it was your thing, right? Mm. But those that audience exists out there. But because it's a small audience, and because it won't generate clicks, only dies. Mm. That's an important cultural part of life, right? Yeah. Um. And uh, if you don't serve that. Well, a little bit of society sort of withers away, but a bit of culture withers away, a bit of the dynamic within within us withers away. Um, and it's just steadily and steadily and steadily the 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 media has 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 focused narrowly down on topics which it knows sells, and I don't think that that's necessarily well. It's not. It doesn't. It doesn't serve readers because we need to know more than just the, if I only read about things I was only interested in, I would read about computer games, horror movies, um, cooking, you know, and not everything else would go out the window. So you can't, I can't, if that's all I'm fed, if the algorithm just feeds me what I want, I'll become pretty stupid. Yeah. And, and speaking of, of algorithms and, and Twitter, I mean, you know, have you ever, you've obviously been very active in your political commentary career. Have you ever had any sort of funny Twitter spats? Like, what have been, what have been the highs and lows of, of your online life, if you like? To be honest, I, I kind of can't stand social media now. I'm genuinely thinking if, if, if you see you're trapped in it as a journalist, I need to, back to this conversation about clickbait, about eyeballs, I need yeah. folk to read my stories. If yeah. journalists aren't read, then... Oh. They're not doing any job at all, right? Yeah. So you need to find topics which which people want to read about, and you need to find ways in which to communicate those topics to to readers. Um. So, uh, I I need to use social media to broadcast um to folk. Here's a story you might be interested in, but I wish to God I could get off it. I wish I could find another way to let people know that's that that they that stories I'm writing exist because you're just going into, frankly, a shithole every morning. It's a it's a squalid dump of monsters. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a handful of folk on there. You know, me and you have engaged. I engage with a lot of people who are nice, decent, interesting people. It doesn't mean we have to have a love in every day. I'm sure maybe maybe I can't remember, but maybe me and you have disagreed in the past. That's cool. If we disagree healthily, brilliant. Delighted yeah. to disagree healthily, have a constructive debate, even an argument where people shake hands at the end. That doesn't it's just a it's just a an it's not even a war zone. It's like uh, it, it, it's like something out of Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, you know, it's nasty and brutish. Yeah. Where it's just the this this uh, primordial sink of people trying to hurt and wound each other, and I I have no interest in it anymore. So, way back, maybe at one point, I might have, have found Twitter fun. It just disgusts me on every level, and I really hate the fact that I have to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll probably keep on using it because. Like everybody, I'm handcuffed to it because I can't find another way. I wish that thing threads had worked. That yeah, it's, it's not really worked though, is it? It's just I'm oh, not. Yeah, I've, we've got it for on tribal, but we don't really use it just because it's it's just not so, the same. And yet we might we might have Twitter taken away for us. Real Elon good. Musk char- charging. You no, know, I, I hope I hope that lunatic burns it down. I hope yeah. he burns it down. I would love to see him burn it down because then I can walk out of the burning building. Yeah, um, I'd, 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 to be honest, I'm the same. Like, I took myself off personal social medias uh, when I turned, I think I was about five years ago or something. Uh, I think it was around the same time that COVID started. I just thought, you know what, I can't sit and 
you know, just literally scroll all day and and just consume this mindless content for eight layers. Couldn't couldn't do it. So I deleted it. Obviously, with Untribal, I've had to get Twitter back. But how good would that feeling be? Just walking away from Twitter and not having you know, there's a movement now. We're not paying for it, so everyone would just walk away. Like, how how great would that be? No way am I paying for it. Well, I'm going to pay for some prick in Arizona to insult me because he doesn't like what I've said about Elon Musk or something. No, I'm not paying for that. Yeah. How do you how do you how do you think it would shift if we didn't have X or Twitter? Listen, I you know I've written a couple of novels in my life. There's a, I would I'm, I've been trying to write a novel for ages in which it's a kind of uh, speculative fiction where somehow in the near future social media is over and we're trying to come to terms with going back to that almost analog life hmm. um look I, I, you know, I i've been a i've been a sort of techie kind of kid since the 70s since i got on atari since i was shooting space invaders when i was seven or eight years old so i i embrace all new technology i'm not a luddite hmm. i don't want i know i don't want to pick up my 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 hammer and smash the spinning jenny and send us all back into the some you know agrarian past but um technology is not um has not been our friend for at least 15 years i think it's because technology has harnessed itself into hyper capitalism you know and and also capitalism unbound where there's no rules um because the people who are now in control are as rich as some countries and also it's it's making this kind of relationship to the, the libertarian right in America, the Musks and the Peter Thiels and so forth. These are highly dangerous human beings. Mm. Um, I mean, Zuckerberg is a dangerous person, but these Musk puts him in the shade. Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, I mean, forgive me if I wax maybe a bit metaphysical here, but I think there is a real disjoint between how in evolutionary terms, I don't think human beings have evolved emotionally enough to be able to. We're technologically like gods. We're yeah. emotionally like monkeys. Yeah. You know, I think emotionally yeah, no. we're only off the savanna, but technologically we're nearly populating other planets. Mm. They are two, two things that don't don't sit right. We don't have the emotional intelligence in which to handle the technological leaps we've made. I mean, you know. Surely Oppenheimer is the, the great example of that, but but we are where we are. So if we could find some way, we did it in the Victorian age. We hobbled the you know the the steel barons and the railroad barons who were running monopolies and they were um, destroying economies and, de and and destabilizing politics. We we passed laws back then that curtailed these people. We should pass. I think deliberately draconian legislation against uh, tech companies, I think we should hurt them because they've hurt us. Mm. And, you know, while I might be, you know, a, a, a liberal lefty, I also think sometimes if, you know, it should be a case of do as I would be done to, you've damaged society, we should damage them punitively. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean just regulate them. I think we should go after them criminally for mm. a lot of the things they've done. Um, yeah. I think that they are completely aware that they're uh, taking part in the destabilization of um, Western elections in particular. I think they completely know and they, they I think they know that they are benefiting from hate speech. So if you're benefiting from illegal if hate, if, if, if something is a crime in a particular jurisdiction, 
then they should be prosecuted for aiding and abetting that if they have. Um, you know, whether that's whether that's affecting um, you know, young women's health through, you know, horrible anorexia um pages or whether it's uh, promulgating Russian troll propaganda, whether it's um you know, algorithmically promoting hate speech, they should be punished for that. Really yeah. hurt. And you touched on you touched on a big one as well there, which was health. Uh, I think the, the the evidence that we're seeing about mental health and chronic yeah. illnesses, migraines, you know, the, these kind of health things that are starting to creep back at in creeping in society and in, in in big numbers. The the evidence is starting to it's start it's starting to become difficult. To de-align those two things based on the evidence between health and it's it's no longer just a correlation. It's like these things are intertwined massively, and they knew they knew exactly what they were doing. You talked a little bit about the sort of mental side of things as well. I don't know if you uh, noticed that I, I sort of re-posted a a health study which basically put four um, accounts, TikTok accounts in Western countries. So I think. Uh, two were in America, one was in the UK, one was in Central Europe, and they were all set at 13 years old females. And mm-hmm. without without any sort of, you know, algorithms feed off, you get like, I don't know, if you if you like something or you click on something, it like feeds the algorithm, but it, it moves you in different directions. This was without any prompts whatsoever. Within five minutes, every single one of those accounts were showing suicide content and eating disorder content within 30 seconds. Like one of them had been shown that as well. Like they like these, these things are deliberate. You know, they, they, they can't, they can't escape that kind of criticism. Can they? It's, no, 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 they can't. And nor is it like, nor I, 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 am a great believer that hope lies with the younger generation. Can I be cheeky and ask your age? Is, is that all right? Yeah. I'm 27. Yeah. 27, right? So you see me as one of my one of my daughters. Okay. I don't think there's a, there's any surprise. I think your generation is very savvy and switched on. And I really, really, really hope that in a few years, when your generation gets its arse into the seats of power, that things start to change in terms of society, homophobia, racism, misogyny, all that stuff. But also mental health. You folks have got your heads screwed on. Forgive the mixed metaphor when it comes to, when it comes to mental health. Absolutely, I've never yeah. I've never known a generation. Now it started in my generation. We started to be more open about it. Generation X, we were more open about it. But there was still the stigma that. But a lot of my generation said, "Look, we got to be open about things like did you experience depression and stuff." We all go through that stuff when we're young, particularly when you after uni, during uni, all that stuff, feeling unsure of your place in the world. So. Like so, like a lot of things, Generation X started the progressive ball rolling. Like you know, w- you know, we were very anti-apartheid, very anti-homophobia. We wanted to see the end of Section Twenty Eight. We wanted equal marriage. Um, we'd raised the issue of mental health, but the torch has been passed to your generation. I really believe that you are the guys who can make the change. And it's no surprise, you know, when you hear all these flipping uh, culture warriors going on about snowflake generation. What? bullshit it's not it's a generation your generation has got its shit together when it comes to understanding itself and what you need and a bit of a bit of um <clears throat> what am i trying to say here i think you've got the self-knowledge to realize that you can't walk around pretending that you're strong all the time and when mm-hmm. you're when when the chips are down talk about it you know and that's the best thing to do so yeah. i don't think it's any surprise though that your generation switched on this about mental health comes from a generation which has been saturated in social media because yeah. like my daughters 
uh, funny enough, I was speaking to my two girls last night about um, about the internet, and I was saying, you de- you definitely do remember a time before the internet, don't you, girls? And they're like, just, just about. So your generation, you know, we're, we're, we're caught in the grips of the growth of, of the internet and social media, and it's almost like a, an experiment. What happened to your generation is almost like some dark experiment. Yeah. Um, and I think it's no surprise that you're the ones who are saying, we are experiencing mental health problems and we want we want a better kind of way of looking at mental health. So as often, hats off to the younger generation. I think you're, um, like I say, hope lies with the young. Yeah, I think it's maybe a sort of reverse revolution of the digital age where hopefully people start switching off to it to say, look, you know, this this isn't doing it for me. I think a lot of, more and more people are doing that, myself included, five years ago. I think when you I think when you lot start to have kids, that'll change. Because yeah, you'll still, you know, <clears throat> you'll realise shit this is what it did to me i'm not gonna yeah. let that happen to my kid absolutely and yeah and i think you know twitter was one of these things that had a hold on us because it's such an important news source for people but hopefully as you say if, if elon burns it to the ground we can just say bye bye to that and uh and move on, hopefully yeah hopefully but uh, listen neil it's been fantastic speaking to you today thanks so much for coming on the podcast is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners before you go no just stay lovely and um do good deeds in the world don't don't be a dick <laughs> cheers Dale. thank you Thank you, Ennis.